Section 41 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1D, Section 41, Chapter 44, Part 5. Such high profits naturally begat intruders upon their commerce, and in order to secure themselves against encroachments, the patentees were armed with high and arbitrary powers from the council, by which they were enabled to oppress the people at leisure, and to exact money from such as they thought proper to accuse of interfering with their patent. The patentees of Saltpetre having the power of entering into every house, and of committing what havoc they pleased in stables, cellars, or wherever they suspected saltpetre might be gathered, commonly extorted money from those who desired to free themselves from this damage or trouble. And while all domestic intercourse was thus restrained, lest any scope should remain for industry, almost every species of foreign commerce was confined to exclusive companies, who bought and sold at any price that they themselves thought proper to offer or exact. These grievances, the most intolerable for the present, and the most pernicious in their consequences, that were ever known in any age or under any government, had been mentioned in the last Parliament, and a petition had even been presented to the Queen, complaining of the patents, but she still persisted in defending her monopolists against her people. A bill was now introduced into the lower house, abolishing all these monopolies, and as the former application had been unsuccessful, a law was insisted on as the only certain expedient for correcting these abuses. The courtiers, on the other hand, maintained that this matter regarded the prerogative and that the commons could never hope for success, if they did not make application in the most humble and respectful manner to the Queen's goodness and beneficence. The topics which were advanced in the House, and which came equally from the courtiers and the country gentlemen, and were admitted by both, will appear the most extraordinary to such as are prepossessed with an idea of the privileges enjoyed by the people during that age, and of the liberty possessed under the administration of Elizabeth. It was asserted that the Queen inherited both an enlarging and a restraining power. By her prerogative she might set at liberty what was restrained by statute or otherwise, and by her prerogative she might restrain what was otherwise at liberty, that the royal prerogative was not to be canvassed, nor disputed, nor examined, and did not even admit of any limitation. That absolute princes, such as the sovereigns of England, were a species of divinity, that it was in vain to attempt tying the Queen's hands by laws or statutes, since by means of her dispensing power she could loosen herself at pleasure, 
and that even if a clause should be annexed to a statute excluding her dispensing power she could first dispense with that clause and then with the statute after all this discourse more worthy of a turkish divan than of an english house of commons according to our present idea of this assembly the queen who perceived how odious monopolies had become and what heats were likely to arise sent for the speaker and desired him to acquaint the house that she would immediately cancel the most grievous and oppressive of these patents the house was struck with astonishment and admiration and gratitude at this extraordinary instance of the queen's goodness and condescension a member said with tears in his eyes that if a sentence of everlasting happiness had been pronounced in his favour he could not have felt more joy than that with which he was at present overwhelmed another observed that this message from the sacred person of the queen was a kind of gospel or glad tidings and ought to be received as such and be written in the tablets of their hearts and it was further remarked that in the same manner as the deity would not give his glory to another so the queen herself was the only agent in their present prosperity and happiness the house voted that the speaker with a committee should ask permission to wait on her majesty and return thanks to her for her gracious concessions to her people when the speaker with the other members was introduced to the queen they all flung themselves on their knees and remained in that posture a considerable time till she thought proper to express her desire that they should rise the speaker displayed the gratitude of the commons because her sacred ears were ever open to hear them and her blessed hands ever stretched out to relieve them they acknowledged he said in all duty and thankfulness acknowledged that before they called her preventing grace and all-deserving goodness watched over them for their good more ready to give than they could desire much less deserve he remarked that the attribute which was most proper to god to perform all he promiseth appertained also to her and that she was all truth all constancy and all goodness and he concluded with these expressions neither do we present our thanks in words or any outward sign which can be no sufficient retribution for so great goodness but in all duty and thankfulness prostrate at your feet we present our most loyal and thankful hearts even the last drop of blood in our hearts and the last spirit of breath in our nostrils to be poured out to be breathed up for your safety the queen heard very patiently this speech in which she was flattered in phrases appropriated to the supreme being and she returned an answer full of such expressions of tenderness towards her people as ought to have appeared fulsome after the late instances of rigour which she had employed and from which nothing but necessity had made her depart thus was this critical affair happily terminated 
and Elizabeth, by prudently receding in time from part of her prerogative, maintained her dignity and preserved the affections of her people. The commons granted her a supply quite unprecedented of four subsidies and eight fifteenths, and they were so dutiful as to vote this supply before they received any satisfaction in the business of monopolies, which they justly considered as of the utmost importance to the interest and happiness of the nation. Had they attempted to extort that concession by keeping the supply in suspense, so haughty was the queen's disposition that this appearance of constraint and jealousy had been sufficient to have produced a denial of all their requests and to have forced her into some acts of authority still more violent and arbitrary the remaining events of this reign are neither numerous nor important the queen finding that the Spaniards had involved her in so much trouble by fomenting and assisting the Irish rebellion, resolved to give them employment at home, and she fitted out a squadron of nine ships under Sir Richard Levison, Admiral, and Sir William Monson, Vice-Admiral, whom she sent on an expedition to the coast of Spain. The Admiral, with part of the squadron, met the galleons loaded with treasure, but was not strong enough to attack them. The vice-admiral also fell in with some rich ships, but they escaped for a like reason, and these two brave officers, that their expedition might not prove entirely fruitless, resolved to attack the harbour of Serimbra, in Portugal, where they received intelligence a very rich carrack had taken shelter. The harbour was guarded by a castle. There were eleven galleys stationed in it, and the militia of the country to the number, as was believed, of twenty thousand men, appeared in arms on the shore. Yet, notwithstanding these obstacles and others derived from the winds and tides, the English squadron broke into the harbour, dismounted the guns of the castle, sunk or burnt, or put to flight the galleys, and obliged the carrack to surrender. They brought her home to England, and she was valued at a million of ducats, a sensible loss to the Spaniards, and a supply still more important to Elizabeth. The affairs of Ireland, after the defeat of Tyrone and the expulsion of the Spaniards, hastened to a settlement. Lord Mountjoy divided his army into small parties, and harassed the rebels on every side. He built Charlemont and many other small forts, which were impregnable to the Irish, and guarded all the important passes of the country. The activity of Sir Henry Dockray and Sir Arthur Chichester permitted no repose or security to the rebels, and many of the chieftains, after skulking during some time in woods and morasses, submitted to mercy, and received such conditions as the deputy was pleased to impose upon them. Tyrone himself made application by Arthur Macbarron, his brother, to be received upon terms. But Mountjoy would not admit him, except he made an absolute surrender of his life and fortunes to the Queen's mercy. 
he appeared before the deputy at Milfont, in a habit and posture suitable to his present fortune, and after acknowledging his offence in the most humble terms, he was committed to custody by Mountjoy, who intended to bring him over captive into England, to be disposed of at the Queen's pleasure. But Elizabeth was now incapable of receiving any satisfaction from this fortunate event. She had fallen into a profound melancholy, which all the advantages of her high fortune, all the glories of her prosperous reign, were unable in any degree to alleviate or assuage. Some ascribed this depression of mind to her repentance of granting a pardon to Tyrone, whom she had always resolved to bring to condign punishment for his treasons, but who had made such interest with the ministers as to extort a remission from her. Others, with more likelihood, accounted for her dejection by a discovery which she had made of the correspondence maintained in her court with her successor, the King of Scots, and by the neglect to which, on account of her old age and infirmities, she imagined herself to be exposed. But there is another cause assigned for her melancholy, which has long been rejected by historians as romantic, but which late discoveries seem to have confirmed. Some incidents happened which revived her tenderness for Essex, and filled her with the deepest sorrow for the consent which she had unwarily given to his execution. The Earl of Essex, after his return from the fortunate expedition against Cadiz, observing the increase of the Queen's fond attachment towards him, took occasion to regret that the necessity of her service required him often to be absent from her person, and exposed him to all those ill offices which his enemies, more assiduous in their attendance, could employ against him. She was moved with this tender jealousy, and making him the present of a ring, desired him to keep that pledge of her affection, and assured him that into whatever disgrace he should fall, whatever prejudices she might be induced to entertain against him, yet, if he sent her that ring, she would immediately upon the sight of it recall her former tenderness, would afford him a patient hearing, and would lend a favourable ear to his apology. Essex, notwithstanding all his misfortunes, reserved this precious gift to the last extremity, but after his trial and condemnation, he resolved to try the experiment, and he committed the ring to the Countess of Nottingham, whom he desired to deliver it to the Queen. The Countess was prevailed on by her husband, the mortal enemy of Essex, not to execute the commission, and Elizabeth, who still expected that her favourite would make this last appeal to her tenderness, and who ascribed the neglect of it to his invincible obstinacy, was, after much delay and many internal combats, pushed by resentment and policy to sign the warrant for his execution. The Countess of Nottingham, 
falling into sickness and affected with the near approach of death was seized with remorse for her conduct and having obtained a visit from the queen she craved her pardon and revealed to her the fatal secret the queen astonished with this incident burst into a furious passion she shook the dying countess in her bed and crying to her that god might pardon her but she never could and thenceforth resigned herself over to the deepest and most incurable melancholy she rejected all consolation she even refused food and sustenance and throwing herself on the floor she remained sullen and immovable feeding her thoughts on her afflictions and declaring life and existence an insufferable burden to her few words she uttered and they were all expressive of some inward grief which she cared not to reveal but sighs and groans were the chief vent which she gave to her despondency and which though they discovered her sorrows were never able to ease or assuage them ten days and nights she lay upon the carpet leaning on cushions which her maids brought her and her physicians could not persuade her to allow herself to be put to bed much less to make trial of any remedies which they prescribed to her her anxious mind at last had so long preyed on her frail body that her end was visibly approaching and the council being assembled sent the keeper admiral and secretary to know her will with regard to her successor she answered with a faint voice that as she had held a regal sceptre she desired no other than a royal successor cecil requesting her to explain herself more particularly she subjoined that she would have a king to succeed her and who should that be but her nearest kinsman the king of scots being then advised by the archbishop of canterbury to fix her thoughts upon god she replied that she did so nor did her mind in the least wander from him her voice soon after left her and senses failed she fell into a lethargic slumber which continued some hours and she expired gently without further struggle or convulsion in the seventieth year of her age and forty-fifth of her reign so dark a cloud overcast the evening of that day which had shone out with a mighty lustre in the eyes of all europe there are few great personages in history who have been more exposed to the calumny of enemies and the adulation of friends than queen elizabeth and yet there scarcely is any whose reputation has been more certainly determined by the unanimous consent of posterity the unusual length of her administration and the strong features of her character were able to overcome all prejudices and obliging her detractors to abate much of their invectives 
and her admirers somewhat of their panegyrics have at last in spite of political factions and what is more of religious animosities produced a uniform judgment with regard to her conduct her vigour her constancy her magnanimity her penetration vigilance address are allowed to merit the highest praises and appear not to have been surpassed by any person that ever filled a throne a conduct less rigorous less imperious more sincere more indulgent to her people would have been requisite to form a perfect character by the force of her mind she controlled all her more active and stronger qualities and prevented them from running into excess her heroism was exempt from temerity her frugality from avarice her friendship from partiality her active temper from turbulency and a vain ambition she guarded not herself with equal care or equal success from lesser infirmities the rivalship of beauty the desire of admiration the jealousy of love and the sallies of anger her singular talents for government were founded equally on her temper and on her capacity endowed with a great command over herself she soon obtained an uncontrolled ascendant over her people and while she merited all their esteem by her real virtues she also engaged their affections by her pretended ones few sovereigns of england succeeded to the throne in more difficult circumstances and none ever conducted the government with such uniform success and felicity though unacquainted with the practice of toleration the true secret for managing religious factions she preserved her people by her superior prudence from those confusions in which theological controversy had involved all the neighbouring nations and though her enemies were the most powerful princes of europe the most active the most enterprising the least scrupulous she was able by her vigour to make deep impressions on their states her own greatness meanwhile remained untouched and unimpaired the wise ministers and brave warriors who flourished under her reign share the praise of her success but instead of lessening the applause due to her they make great addition to it they owed all of them their advancement to her choice they were supported by her constancy and with all their abilities they were never able to acquire any undue ascendant over her in her family in her court in her kingdom she remained equally mistress the force of the tender passions was great over her but the force of her mind was still superior and the combat which her victory visibly cost her serves only to display the firmness of her resolution and the loftiness of her ambitious sentiments the fame of this princess though it has surmounted the prejudices both of faction and bigotry yet lies still exposed to another prejudice 
which is more durable because more natural, and which, according to the different views in which we survey her, is capable either of exalting beyond measure or diminishing the lustre of her character. This prejudice is founded on the consideration of her sex. When we contemplate her as a woman, we are apt to be struck with the highest admiration of her great qualities and extensive capacity, but we are also apt to require some more softness of disposition, some greater lenity of temper, some of those amiable weaknesses by which her sex is distinguished. But the true method of estimating her merit is to lay aside all these considerations and consider her merely as a rational being placed in authority and entrusted with the government of mankind. We may find it difficult to reconcile our fancy to her as a wife or a mistress, but her qualities as a sovereign, though with some considerable exceptions, are the object of undisputed applause and approbation. End of section 41, chapter 44, part 5.